The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the president who had it all, then lost it all, only to gain a lot of it back, Richard Nixon. By most accounts, Tricky Dick had a successful run in the White House, but it was all cut short by the Watergate cover-up. Today, the perspective of history has shown us that his might just be the ultimate comeback story. The president who went from rock bottom to respected and appreciated by the nation, and most importantly, his presidential colleagues. The surprisingly influential post-presidency of Richard Milhouse Nixon, next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Joining us for this discussion about Nixon's post-presidency is author, historian, and former presidential speechwriter Casey Pipes. In addition to writing a best-selling book about President Eisenhower, he's also published the intriguing book, After the Fall, The Remarkable Comeback of Richard Nixon. Casey, thanks for helping us reveal a bit of the mystery behind the controversial and often misunderstood 37th POTUS. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Casey, it's Alan. It's great uh, great to hear your voice again. I know we uh, share an admiration for George W. Bush, and uh, it's been too long since we've talked. It has been. Uh, time flies. Getting pr- close to 50 now, which is hard to believe, but it, it, time really flies now these days. Well, I've, I've zoomed past that, Casey. So <laughs> there is li- there's life on the other side, I can tell you. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I've really enjoyed this book, and thanks so much for joining us on American POTUS. Now, to write this, you were granted unprecedented access to Nixon's post-presidential materials. How did that come about, and can you kind of describe that collection to us? So it, it's kind of a long story, but it begins with uh, one of the grandchildren, Chris Nixon Cox, uh, who I met when I was working uh, for President Bush at the White House. We had an intern who was at, at, at Princeton and was friends with an undergrad there. And so he came down to see his friend. I met him. I actually toured him around the West Wing. I believe it was the first time he'd ever seen the West Wing. Uh, he was born in 1979, so after his grandfather had had left the office, and we became friends. And he mentioned to me uh, over the course of the next you know several years of staying in touch that no one had ever really done a focus on his grandfather's post presidency. There's pieces of it that have been done. Uh, Robert Sam Anson did a, a book called Exile, which covered I think the first seven or eight years. No one had ever done the, the whole 20 years, and no one had been given access um, to the post-presidency papers. Uh, and, and those papers are deposited at Yorba Linda at the Nixon Library, but they are controlled uh, by the family. They're not presidential records. They happened after he was in office. And so uh, I was able to work through uh, Chris Cox and, and talk to his parents, uh, Ed and Tricia, and then eventually David and Julie Eisenhower, and was able to secure permission to to look at the documents and use them in the writing of this. 
you know, what I found was it, it was just sort of a hodgepodge of that 20 years. I mean, there were letters there. There were drafts of uh, of memos that, that Nixon wrote. There were obviously some diary entries, drafts of speeches. I mean, Nixon really, he, he wrote to think, if that makes sense. I mean, he was, when he, when he was thinking, he was writing. And so you, you really get a sense of what was going on in his mind and in his world by looking through, you know, seven or eight speech drafts or seven or eight drafts of, of a memo. And so those were the kinds of things that I found. And, and really, you know, to me, the really remarkable thing was um, the extent to which I found the extent to which he was engaged in this period that he was actively trying to uh, influence events, influence policy in particular, and use his his mind, his skill set, which was really really his knowledge in foreign policy, uh, to really kind of leverage leverage that and 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 have a say and and to use that as kind of his way back into the public arena and i think he was was way more successful and way more effective at it than than we've previously realized sure and you show that so well and after the fall now as as you also show in that book as he came back to california after the resignation he faced a lot of hardship he was very close to death his wife pat had a stroke they faced extensive financial problems. He was disbarred by the state of New York. He sparred with prosecutors who were aiming for him and imprisoning several of his friends. What kept them going, both Nixons, in that immediate aftermath, in those immediate months and years following the resignation? I think really two things. I mean, one is the the sort of the, the joke that, that Julie likes to tell, although it was a, a, he said it, and, it, and it, it was not intended as a joke, but what we look back on it as kind of a funny Nixon line, you know, she asked him one time in those dark days, you know, dad, what gets you out of bed in the morning? And he said, you know, to confound my enemies. Um, and that was, you know, kind of the defiant spirit that we've come to expect from Nixon. So I think that was one reason, like he was just a fighter and a battler and he wasn't going to go down and give up even though he had lost everything. But I think the other reason and, and really the reason that we see in this book is he felt like there was unfinished business. I mean, he felt that there was something left to contribute, particularly in foreign policy, that he had a sense that the Cold War was sort of evolving into a new period where real real progress could be made. Uh, he felt uniquely qualified to speak to that. And as the years go on and we get farther away from August of 1974, and the disgrace of Watergate, we begin to see policymakers in Washington, really on both sides of the aisle, but certainly first on the Republican side, who are willing to hear from him, who want to hear from him uh, on foreign policy. And then, of course, with the books that he begins writing, uh, these are not just books that he's writing. He's books that are bestsellers. They're, they're books that matter. They're books that put him on Meet the Press and back in front of a larger audience. And so he becomes influential because he knows so much about the world and he has so much to say about the world. And he is really without peer in terms of being a foreign policy expert. I mean, Kissinger certainly I think, saw himself as an equal um, and, and kind of pursued you know, a similar track. But in terms of a, of a former president, 
we've never really seen until Nixon a post-presidency quite like this. I mean, if you think about the the ex-presidents who were alive in August of 1974 when Nixon leaves the White House, or, or, or the, the people that he, recent ex-presidents, you know, think about Eisenhower, you know, going to the farm in, in, in Gettysburg half the year and Palm Springs half the year, Johnson going to the ranch, Truman going to Independence. These were men that just sort of retired and went away. And Nixon, for financial reasons, obviously needed to make money, but also, again, for his own, just his own personal well-being, wanted to have a role to play, wanted to have something to say. And so he begins these public appearances. He begins the book writing. He begins the public speeches. And this really, I argue in the book, kind of creates the new template for the ex-presidents. I mean, if you think about ex-presidents today, they're much closer to Nixon than they were, than they are Truman or Eisenhower or Johnson. So it's a remarkable period where he not, not only sort of reestablishes himself, but he, he reestablishes what role a, a, an ex-president can play. And it's really the role all ex-presidents today follow. I've always enjoyed his books so much. How many did he write uh, in the post-presidency? So he writes nine, including the memoir, and then if you add, mm-hmm. you know, six crises from crises. Mm-hmm. in total, yeah. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed the book Leaders. Uh, that was always one of my favorite. Just really a great writing style and such insight in those. Well, and again, it, it's fascinating. You know, Leaders is one of my favorites as well. And, and of course, it, it's fascinating, you know, who he picks and who he doesn't pick. You know, Eisenhower is not in there, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. But But he's, you know, he's, He's talking about what makes leaders successful, particularly, in, again, on the world stage, which is what mattered most to him. And as, as you know, that book came out in 1982 when Reagan is, is firmly in office and, and Nixon is very much uh, back in vogue. I mean, he is uh, not only talking to Reagan, he's talking to uh, George Shultz, he's talking to Mike Deaver and Len at the White House. I mean, he has uh, real access to that administration and sees the Reagan years as a real promising moment for the Cold War. And of course, he was right. right. Let's let's jump back in time just a little bit as he's, he's returning to California. And we know in September of 1974, President Ford extends the pardon to him, a, a very unpopular move then that's largely applauded now. And you talk about in After the Fall, the meetings of Ford representatives uh, with Nixon in the buildup to that pardon. Can you kind of tell our listeners the main issues that had to be addressed before the pardon was issued? So Ford really thought that the pardon was the right thing to do for the country. He, he I think at some level, probably thought it would, would save his presidency as well in, in, in terms of saving it from having to deal with, with the aftermath of Watergate, of course. You know, we, we now know it probably cost him the 76 election, but he certainly thought it was the right thing for the country and, and, and the right thing for Nixon. Uh, he sent uh, several emissaries out to San Clemente to talk to Nixon. Uh, they all came back and said he's in dreadful shape physically. You know, he may not he may not make it. Of course, as you mentioned earlier, Alan, he got very sick in, in October of 1974 and had to undergo surgery. So Ford is is for both. Uh, you know, reasons for the country and reasons for Nixon's health, trying to find an honorable exit here. And what he really wants is Nixon to acknowledge some type of, of 
culpability here, to acknowledge in some way accountability, that he did something wrong. I mean, he's willing to give him the pardon, but what it, you know, it raises the question, what are you giving the pardon for? You know, if, if Nixon is, is denying anything happened. And so there's a series of negotiations that go on back and forth. Uh, Bitten Becker is a young White House lawyer who's sent to kind of negotiate directly with Nixon on a statement that Nixon would issue publicly, essentially acknowledging his role. And, and this goes back and forth for several days. And finally, Nixon presents a statement to Becker in which there's a line at the very end of it that says that the way I tried to deal with Watergate was the wrong way. And it's a burden I shall bear for every day of the life that is left to me. And Becker felt it's not an admission of guilt, but it's close enough. And he took it back to the White House and Ford accepted it and the pardon was obviously issued. And it's interesting because that line that Nixon draws in, in that statement, he does something very similar years later in the Frost interviews. And he does something similar really for the rest of his life, which is to accept a moral responsibility for his role in Watergate without ever acknowledging a legal responsibility. And this is the line that Nixon takes for the next 20 years. And, you know, people I think one of the myths about this period of Nixon's life uh, is that he never expressed any remorse at all. It's actually not true. Uh, he, he, he was remorseful. He did feel like. Uh, as he said in the Frost interviews, you know, that I that I, I screwed it up and I let the country down. Um, but he never viewed what he did as as legally liable. Uh, and that's that's the line that he never would cross that line the rest of his life. He separated them between moral and legal wrongdoing. But that was the arrangement that he that he had with Becker and with the Ford White House and and that was those were the terms for the pardon that was issued in 1974. And speaking of those legendary 1977 Nixon Frost interviews, you, you take kind of a different view of those from Nixon detractors. What what did what do you believe Nixon gained from those interviews with Frost? Well, again, I mean, Nixon is trying to reemerge publicly. He he writes in his diary in late 1974 that the path forward will be through some speeches, some public appearances, uh, and some books that allow him to talk about foreign policy again. And this is really kind of the roadmap for him in these years, that he's going to use foreign policy as the topic, and then the the platform will be um, either speeches to the public, media appearances when possible, uh, books that are sold, and then eventually the, the party didn't anticipate in that diary entry is, you know, actual personal advice to three presidents. Uh, you know, he's so successful with the books and the speeches and the media, and the public takes him back, uh, and he's, he's acceptable again by the 1980s that he's allowed to actually become an elder statesman and a counselor uh, of sorts. So the Frost interview is a huge turning point because it's a it's a mass audience. It's really the first time he's been seen in that type of way, uh, you know, certainly in front of that size of an audience since since Watergate. 
And I, I think the the one thing that I sort of challenge in the book is the conventional wisdom that, you know, Frost really got the better of him. Frost, you know, really, uh, you know, trapped him on Watergate and got him to acknowledge some wrongdoing. The truth of the matter is he certainly knew the Watergate questions were coming. They had been working on them in the memoirs. You know, he'd been working on the memoirs with Frank Gannon and Diane Sawyer and others in San Clemente. Watergate, of course, was such a, a large topic, and there were so many sort of moving parts to it, many of which, you know, I mean, his, his if you think about it, I mean, his involvement in it comes after Watergate, right? He, he becomes involved in sort of trying to protect people uh, and cover up for them. But, but the actual, you know, events surrounding Watergate a lot of it he you know, didn't know anything about. And there's a there's a scene in the book where I tell the story of Diane Sawyer, you know, writing the Watergate section of the book, and she brings in a draft of it, and he reads it, and he says to her, you know, this is the first time I've ever understood the whole thing. And so there were a lot of sort of you know things about Watergate that you know he didn't really have answers for. So he certainly knew these things were going to come up with Frost. It was not like he was surprised Frost was asking him penetrating questions about Watergate. And and there's, you know, there's the famous scene and it's it's in the play and it's in the movie and, and you know, where, you know, Frost sort of, you know, has, has you know, has some transcripts and, and reads him, you know, transcripts from the Oval Office and, and, and Colonel Brennan, you know, asked for a break. And, and this is sort of presented as, as, you know, that, that you know, Nixon was totally caught flat footed. The reality is, as I document in the book, that you know, he and, and Ken Kashigian, who was with him and, and at the at the interviews and was sort of staffing him in the green room, when I mean, they talked about this, like you know what what is the answer that you want to give? And Nixon said, you know, I know what I know what David Frost wants me to say. You know, he wants me to grovel and say that you know I was responsible, but I wasn't responsible. I, you know, I, I I didn't know these things were going to go on. But, you know, when it when it happened, I, I, I should have put an end to it. I didn't. I, you know, I tried to, you know, fight for my friends and I, I screwed it up and, 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 I, and I messed up. And she says, well, that, that's what you should say. You know, that's the answer you should give. And so it's literally, if you go back and look at the transcript of the interviews with Frost, exactly what he had, had worked on with Kashigian is exactly what he said to Frost. So I think Nixon certainly knew he was going to have to take some responsibility, again, moral responsibility, not not criminal responsibility. And he was willing to do that. He had done it with with Ford on the pardon. He did it with Frost in seventy seven and any any during the interviews in seventy eight. And then and then throughout the rest of his life, he's he's saying the same thing that he, you know, he let people down. He let the country down. So I, I take a slightly different view of the Frost interview based on, you know, what Ken Kashigian told me, which is that he Certainly was not surprised. He just wasn't willing to admit to any criminal wrongdoing. But, he, but again, he, he's more remorseful than people remember that he was. If you'd like to know more about Casey Pipes and his best-selling book on Richard Nixon, click on over to the guest resources section of AmericanPOTUS.com. And while you're there, let us know about any other authors or books that you think would make for an interesting episode. Thanks for listening to American POTUS.
And Casey, you mentioned as part of that emergence, in addition to the interviews and the books, the he begins these public events, a mix of small town and big city events, appearing in my home state of Kentucky and at the Oxford Union. Can you tell us a bit about those first couple of public appearances that he makes? So he, again, this is all part of kind of, you know, figuring out how do I get back out into the public arena? but doing so in a way that will be successful um, in a way that, you know, the audience will be receptive um, that, you know, the event is, is sort of carefully choreographed. And so Haydn, Kentucky is really the first one. It's, it's an interesting choice. Uh, Nixon is invited by the County judge there and he is invited because they are naming their brand new uh, recreation center, a $2.5 million recreation center after Nixon. And they're naming it after Nixon because the money came from the Nixon administration revenue sharing program, which you know, some of your listeners may not recall this, but revenue sharing in the Nixon administration was essentially a way of getting funds from the federal government to local entities with as few strings attached as possible. So it was sort of a, a way of, of getting federal money to local officials, but then letting them spend it how they saw fit. And Nixon saw that as kind of a, you know, a, a very Republican way to do uh, federal funding, a cons- almost a conservative way, if you will. And so Hyden, Kentucky got some money. They built this recreation center. They decided to name it after Nixon. And so they asked him to come uh, speak. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting to watch. And I described the scene in, in the book. I mean, he was very nervous about it. He, you know, he's getting out of the car at the event and he says to his staff, I hope it's not too soon. You know, he was very cognizant of, uh, you know, the nervousness that the public had about him, the anxiety people had that the last time they had seen him, uh, you know, he was he was getting out of a, getting leaving the White House and getting on the helicopter uh, in August of 1974. You know, was this was this going to be too soon? And in, And in fact, it wasn't. You know, people. We're ready to hear from him again. It was it was a, a very receptive audience. They were they were very friendly to him. It was sort of Nixon country, kind of silent majority country, and so the event went very well. And that leads him. The success of that leads him to be more willing to do subsequent public events. And of course, uh, the Oxford Union event is is fascinating because it's really um, he had gone to China in '76, but sort of was careful. You know about doing public appearances. The the Oxford Union trip in '78. He's invited by Jonathan Aiken, who later becomes one of his biographers and is a member of Parliament, conservative member of Parliament. And it's it's a very public event. And so, you know, he goes to the Oxford Union. It's you know it's it's publicized. Uh, he, you know he's debating with with the Oxford students. You know they they drive into the to the venue and there's protesters you know, outside, you know, holding up signs that say jail to the chief. And he jokes that, you know, those must be road scholars. Um, you know, I mean, and, he, and he's, he's, he's very much the Nixon of all. He enjoys the give and take and he enjoys kind of being out in public again. And of course, the other fascinating thing that happens on his trip to London is he meets Margaret Thatcher, which actually says, tells us a lot about her as well, because she was willing uh, to meet him and for, for that news to be out publicly, which it was. It was publicly reported that, you know, the, the opposition leader of the Tories 
met with Richard Nixon. And of course, he was enormously impressed with her and became a, a big fan of hers, you know, throughout once she became prime minister and, and throughout her, her premiership. So those were some of the early events and they were extremely successful and they they convinced him that there was still an audience out there. There were people that wanted to talk to Nixon, to hear from Nixon, particularly on foreign policy, and he becomes much more willing to do public events going forward, particularly in the 1980s. And Ketsi, as you mentioned earlier, he becomes this elder statesman that that comments on and is often consulted by presidents. Let's go through each of the presidents after Ford, starting with Carter. How did Nixon view Jimmy Carter's foreign policy, especially regarding the Soviets and the revolution in Iran? He was pretty underwhelmed by Carter. Um, he, he, you know, certainly appreciated his political skill, certainly appreciated the fact that, you know, he was able to to win in 1976, although, as I document in the book, I think Nixon took a lot of that person. I mean, he, he felt responsible in some ways that, you know, the pardon had really doomed uh, Ford. He, he, he thought Carter was way, way too weak. He thought he was, was, was not nearly strong enough with the Soviets, certainly when they invaded Afghanistan. Just the whole era really was appalling to him, that he, he saw it as an era of weakness uh, the hostage taking, you know, he saw as another failure uh, of the Carter administration, and even sort of, you know, the the bungled handling of the Shaw and his, you know, his illness. Um, he just he he was really appalled, and that leads. It's interesting because that particular era, the Carter era, really leads him into the book writing business. Now, he's done the memoirs. The memoirs came out in 78, and he's talked about writing books, as I mentioned in his diary, going all the way back to to late fall of 1974. But it's not really until 1979 that he begins to, to, to think about a new book, another book. And it's really sort of, you know, how do we, how do we deal with the Soviets? How do we deal with the Cold War? And so he begins, you know, the real war is, 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 is the next book. And it's basically, you know, the first time we see this template, which is repeated several other times in the 1980s, of Nixon writing a book specifically on foreign policy. And again, it's a book that matters. It mattered certainly uh, to Ronald Reagan. It's a, it's a much more aggressive posture with the Soviets, interestingly enough, from the you know, one of the founding fathers of detente, he he thinks that the time has come to be a little more assertive. And again, a lot of that was fueled by his distaste of the Carter policies, which he thought were uh, way too appeasing. And so these are, you know, these are thoughts that, that make their way uh, to Governor Reagan, who, of course, already believed that anyway. But, you know, hearing it from Nixon only reinforced his own views. And so I think that that really began the process of those two men becoming much closer during the 1980 campaign, and then, of course, subsequently in the in the Reagan administration. And, and in that administration, Nixon and Reagan talk, but then as Reagan begins the negotiations with Gorbachev, Nixon becomes concerned. Is that not correct? Yeah. So there's a couple of interesting things about that. So you know, originally Nixon encourages the summit meetings. He thinks. As Margaret Thatcher said, that this is Gorbachev's a man we can do business with. He meets with Gorbachev himself 
and is very impressed with him. And as the, the Reagan-Gorbachev negotiations commence in 1985 and then continue on you know, into 1986, the issue of SDI becomes a real sticking point in the negotiation. So SDI, of course, was Reagan's plan to build a, a missile defense system you know, in space. And this was considered a threat to the Soviets. They didn't have this kind of technology. They, they were very concerned about what Reagan might do with it. And it's actually Nixon who suggests to Reagan, you know, one way around this might be if you offer Gorbachev to share the technology. I mean, it's a defensive technology. There's no, there's no offensive capability with it. You know, why not take the, take the, the politics out of it and offer to share it with him? And by the way, Nixon was very skeptical that SDI would even work, but he loved the, the leverage that it gave Reagan. And of course, this is what Reagan does. And eventually we end up you know, with the INF Treaty, which, as you noted, was a treaty where Nixon thought Reagan gave up too much. I mean, it's interesting, again, beginning in sort of 1979 and 1980, Nixon is sort of moving to the right on foreign policy. Uh, we think of him as detente and, and real politique. And, um, but here he is in, in, in the late 1980s, in the waning days of the Reagan administration, worried that maybe Reagan gave up too much. And it's interesting. I, you know, I actually think Reagan, I don't think, I mean, I, I think it's, it's apparent Reagan was correct that the Soviets were much closer to some sort of collapse uh, than anybody realized. And that, you know, the INF deal could sort of help you know, speed that up. Nixon, I think, was a little more skeptical, uh, as I write in the book, that that there would actually ever be a, an end of the Cold War. I think I think he was surprised in some ways, as as almost everybody was, that it actually ended. But Reagan viewed the negotiations with with Gorbachev as as a way to, you know, get concessions from him, you know, begin some reforms, and and hopefully, uh, you know kind of begin to expose some of the cracks in the system, which you know ultimately he, he was right about. But uh it, it but it is fascinating that we, you know, we, we think of Reagan as the great cold warrior uh and Nixon as, you know, as detente and, you know, making deals and living with each other and accepting uh, you know, the existence of the Soviet Union. And it's and it's actually Nixon who's to Reagan's right uh in the late nineteen eighties taking an even harder line with the Soviets, which is kind of fascinating. And then how did, how did Nixon relate to H.W. Bush when he takes over the reins and his approach to the Soviets? So it, it's interesting. He certainly had known President Bush for many, many years, uh, going all the way back to when Nixon was in office and, and Bush was in Congress. He's very skeptical of Bush. He, he, he worries that he's, you know, maybe not up quite up to the job. Um, Early on in the Bush administration, we have the Tiananmen Square episode uh, in 1989 when, when protesters go out in Tiananmen Square in China and the, and the military comes in with their tanks and kind of runs them over or runs them off. But, but here again is another case where Nixon is able to influence events. I mean, he goes to China on his own dime. He meets with Chinese leadership and he says to them, look. I'm not trying to, we're not trying, nobody in the United States is trying to tell you how to govern your country. But if you do something like that again, if you, you know, send in tanks over peaceful protesters, it's going to dramatically affect your relationship with the West. 
And that, of course, was reported back to the Bush administration. Nixon was actually called in to brief the president on his meetings uh, in China. And there were many people in the Bush administration who believed that having sort of the creator of, of, of you know, the modern U.S. relationship with China, you know, the person who helped open the door to China, having him be a spokesman who says, you guys got to knock it off, uh, actually helped ease the tensions with the Chinese. So he, he, he still was doing what he did best, which was foreign policy and using his relationships around the world. But he was not personally close to Bush. Um, he was a little concerned about some of the execution of the Persian Gulf War uh, in early 1991. He thought Bush was a little too deferential uh, to the UN. But really, the the key moment where he just is sort of cannot accept uh, the Bush policy, ironically, again goes back to the Cold War. As the Cold War was ending. Uh, Nixon, again, moving to the right, as he, as he was doing in these years, really wanted President Bush to be much more forceful in supporting the breakaway republics uh, in the old Soviet Union. And the Bush administration took the view that, you know, these things are already happening. Let's not try to involve ourselves in a way that will rile up Moscow. Let's let them happen organically. And in fact, you know, I, I think most historians look back on that period now and, and view that as a great success of Bush diplomacy, that it was actually skillfully done. But Nixon certainly did not see it that way. He, he believed that much more could have been done and much more should have been done from the White House to support uh, the breakaway republics, to support the dismantling uh, of the Soviet Union and, and, the, and the end of the Cold War. And, and that was really. Uh, and and he did so publicly. I mean, I should mention that. I mean, he did so, uh, you know, in in speeches and in op eds, essentially denouncing the Bush administration, which, by the way, was getting ready to go into a very tough re-election cycle. Uh, so he he certainly knew, you know, that he was not winning any friends in the Bush White House. But that's that's how strongly he felt about it. And 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 by that point, their relationship was was not a very good one. Well, he, he was such a brilliant strategist, had such a grand view of the world. Why was he wrong on that? I, I mean, again, I, I don't know that he was wrong. I, I just think that that the Bush approach happened to have been right. Now, I, I had, had had Bush chosen to engage more with the breakaway republics, it it might have worked out, you know, even better. I mean, it might have happened faster. I don't know, but I, you know, it it. It, it was such a delicate situation, and and the and the Bush people felt like you know there's particularly with nuclear weapons in that area that you know we 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 want to be very careful what we do here, and I, I don't know that they couldn't have done more to speed that up and to help facilitate that and move it along. Nixon certainly thought they should have, but um, you know hindsight is twenty twenty. Of course, right, right. I know we had uh, Jeffrey Engel on. Very early in American POTUS, speaking yeah. about those those very important he years and H. W. Bush's definitive yeah. book on that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very good. So let's turn to a really fascinating relationship that between Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon. Can you tell us a bit about that improbable relationship? Yeah, I mean, it's talk about politics making strange bedfellows. I mean, you hear you have Richard Nixon, who I mean, Hillary Clinton really cuts her teeth, you know, as a young lawyer on the Watergate committee. 
Clinton is running for office uh, about that time in 74 in Arkansas, you know, campaigning against, you know, corrupt Republicans. And, and then and then here they are, uh, uh, you know, in the late 1990s becoming actual friends. So the relationship began, oddly enough, with Bob Dole, uh, Bob Dole, who uh, very much had his sights on running for president in 1996. This was in 1993. But, you know, Dole believed that, as he often said at the time, that we have, you know, one president at a time and, you know, foreign policies, you know, debates on foreign policy should stop at the water's edge. And so he, I think, worried that Clinton didn't have a really good handle on some of the challenges facing him on the world stage. Clinton had run a campaign in 1992 that was almost entirely focused on domestic policy. And so Dole recommended to Clinton, you know, you know who you should talk to, who's a really has a really good mind on these things and a really good handle on these things is is, is Richard Nixon. And uh, lo and behold, Clinton calls Nixon, and they talk for over an hour the first night. They talk again largely about Russia, which is at this time the Soviet Soviet Union is no more; it's now Russia. And Yeltsin has emerged on the scene and. Uh, Nixon is eager to see the United States do more, as he was complaining about the previous administration. Uh, he wanted to see the administration, the Clinton administration, do more to support Yeltsin uh, in general and, and democracy specifically in in, in Russia. Uh, and these were things that Clinton generally was okay with. Now it's it's hard to know, you know, would would Clinton have ended up uh, where he was on these issues, you know, you know, without the influence of Nixon, he might have, but it certainly didn't hurt, and it certainly became a fairly often uh, conversation. I mean, they were talking pretty regularly. In fact, in late 1993, I mean, this is fascinating for, for fans of history out there. Uh, it's Bill Clinton who uh, you know brings Nixon into the White House uh, in a public way uh, for for a meeting and a briefing. Now Nixon had been back to the White House on occasion. He had gone to a, a state dinner for for Carter, and he obviously had been uh, in the Reagan White House a number of times. He'd been in the Bush White House, but this was this was publicly uh, announced to the press that you know Bill Clinton was was talking to Richard Nixon at the White House about Russia, which again marks just a an improbable uh, moment in this comeback. If you think back to where he was. In August of 1974, I mean, it's absolutely toxic situation where, you know, Republicans don't want to be around him. Certainly Democrats don't be around him. And here is Bill Clinton, uh, less than 20 years later, openly seeking out his advice uh, on foreign policy and, and letting the press know about it. I mean, it's remarkable uh, the extent to which he was able to have this comeback. And I think Clinton is really uh, kind of the capstone on that. And of course, you know, who comes and delivers the eulogy a few months later at Nixon's funeral in Yorba Linda, Democratic President Bill Clinton. I mean, it's just remarkable. It is a remarkable story in and of itself, but also it's really refreshing from the viewpoint of today, kind of crossing over partisan boundaries and talking to one another and trying to to learn from one another. It's really very refreshing. Of course, Clinton continued continues to do that with with uh, President George W. Bush and did with H. W. Bush as well. Yeah, no, I th- I think you know that it's a really healthy model. We certainly didn't see a lot of that um, in in the Trump years. Um, I mean, 
Democrats or Republicans weren't, <laughs> or presidents weren't, weren't big on his call list. But I, I think, you know, it's an exclusive club. It's a very limited club. And anytime a president can draw on the experience of someone, particularly someone who was as successful uh, as Nixon was in foreign policy, I think that's a very smart thing to do. A short break to remind you about the guest resources section of AmericanPotus.com. You'll find more information on our guest Casey Pipes and his amazing book on Richard Nixon's post-presidency. And while you're online, be sure to like or follow us on Facebook and Twitter, so you'll be up to date on future episodes and announcements. Thanks for listening to American POTUS. Casey, Nixon had to not only litigate the ownership of his presidential materials, but he fought to find a place for his presidential library. Could you summarize for our listeners that long journey that ultimately led to the beautiful library museum that's in Yorba Linda, California today? So it, it's a long story. I gave it kind of its own chapter in the book because it's kind of a, such a fascinating little piece of the, the Nixon post-presidency. Essentially, Congress passes legislation that basically require all of Nixon's papers to stay in Washington. And of course, the reason for this is the ongoing Watergate investigations. Nixon challenges this in court. He wants to be like all the other presidents and be able to have you know, his papers and, and to have them at his, at his to be later constructed library. It goes all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court rules seven to two that Congress was correct because Nixon is a case of one. <laughs> He's a category of one. And so he no longer has access to his papers. He does still want to create some kind of a library or museum. Uh, originally, they're going to go to USC, which is Pat's alma mater. But again, it's an academic institution. If you don't have the papers for research, you're basically just talking about a museum. And so eventually, USC gets lukewarm. Then Terry Sanford, who was at that time president of Duke, uh, becomes very interested. Of course, Duke is is where Nixon went to law school. And he has to go to the faculty and get them to approve it. And at their faculty vote, it's voted down 35 to 34. They don't want a Nixon museum either. And then at that point, they begin looking at, okay, non, what are some non-academic locations? And so they look at San Clemente. And again, the city council becomes kind of difficult. The negotiations break down. And at that point, they end up with your Belinda, which, as you say, is, is really kind of a perfect spot. I mean, it's uh, it's his hometown. It's Orange County. You know, the house his father built is there on site. So they open in 1990, and it is basically it, it's the only presidential library at that time not affiliated with the National Archives. Uh, it's basically a museum. And it's run by the Nixon Foundation, by many years run by John Taylor, who was his longtime post-presidency chief of staff. And then in uh, 2007, the library uh, finally became part of the National Archives. And so you can actually now go to your Belinda, you can research documents, you, you can, it's just like any other presidential library, but it was a very very long journey getting there. Uh, there were some in the family who were very nervous, I think, about going the route of the National Archives um, for fear that the folks in Washington might try to make the museum entirely about Watergate, whereas before, when it was run by the foundation, they were able to kind of control the narrative at the museum. 
so it is now a part of the National Archives, and I think it's probably been for the better. That's probably where it belongs. And but it was a very long journey getting there and and and, and getting his papers because of Watergate. And that that was a part of my world for a long time. I was in the That's central right. office of yeah. presidential libraries in Washington when some of those negotiations were going on, and the uh, Nixon materials were still stored downstairs, uh, right. overseen by a crew there. And and I will tell you, Casey, one of the most nervous moments in my life is when they moved the original Nixon tapes between buildings. I was a very young archivist, and they asked me to follow the truck with my Nissan Sentra. And I thought, <laughs> what do I do if this truck turns off the route? I had no cell phone at that point, but uh, they made they made the route very safely, and I was very happy when that trip was over. So, uh, and I should also add that uh, for our listeners who are uh, real archives fans, that after this, uh, Congress passed the Presidential Records Act, which really fundamentally altered records from Reagan on that says anything essentially that's created as part of their official duties belongs to the National Archives at the end of the administration. But that was all kind of um, pushed on by this this experience with with the Nixon records. So very interesting stuff. Another another way he inadvertently uh, was a history right. maker. Right, right. Nixon you can say pulled off probably the two greatest political comebacks in American history. The first, of course, after his defeat in 1960 by JFK and the second, as you detail after his resignation. So with that, I have two questions for you. You mentioned earlier how that comeback changed how presidents approached their post-presidency. If you could comment a bit more on that. And then also just tell us why you think he was able to do this. What what gave him the strength to make these improbable comebacks? So the answer to the first question is I think he fundamentally changed all post-presidencies. I think that really the model that we see post-presidents following today is the Nixon model. It's the model of trying to be an influencer, of, of trying to be a, a, you know, a, a, something of an expert on policy. You know, you see, it's, it's interesting now, if, if you look at the libraries, interesting now you see more and more kind of this think tank phenomenon. Um, certainly Bush Institute is doing it. Uh, I mean, it's it, 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 and this is very much, uh, in some ways, you know, traceable back to Nixon. Like, how can we influence policy, uh, not just be a museum? And so, I think he completely and fundamentally changed the model for post presidents. They all do what Nixon did: they write books, they do speeches, they try to make media appearances, and they try to influence policy where they can. And I think Casey, that was a really interesting part of your book that I think so many times. We um, attribute that to Jimmy Carter of changing how post presidencies operate, but really, uh, you're right. It goes right back to Richard Nixon's comeback. I think so, and I mean, I mean, the Carter model is an interesting one because there's there's certainly the the humanitarian component to it, and the you know the good works that are going on, the Habitat for Humanity houses. But boy, in terms of just influencing. Mm-hmm events and decision-making in Washington, nobody has ever done it like Nixon did. I mean, nobody has had that kind of sway. Carter certainly didn't have it, even with a Democratic president, even with Clinton. And, and, and which leads to your second question, which is how did Nixon pull this off? Yeah. And I really think it was because of his mind. I mean, th- this was one of the great intellects really in, in, in recent memory. I mean, I, I, I tell people, when they asked me to describe Nixon, 
you know, he, he was, he was an intellectual miscast in politics. He was not good at, you know, the, the, the handshaking and the small talk and the, you know, the personal touch, the charisma that we associate with a Bill Clinton or a Ronald Reagan. Uh, he wasn't any good at any of that stuff, but man, if you wanted somebody to, to sit with a very difficult public policy issue and really wrestle it to the ground and come to a conclusion, he could do it. I mean, he had the mind for it and he could really work his way through it. And that begins to show even more in the post-presidency with his books, with his public appearances and with the advice and counsel that he's giving to these to these presidents. And so I think his mind was really his greatest gift and and it allowed him to make this comeback in these final years. Well, Casey, now it's time for us to give our listeners a bit of a glimpse into the personal side of Richard Nixon with a few short questions. Here we go. Sure. Past or present, who do you think his favorite president would be? Either Abraham Lincoln or Woodrow Wilson. I mean, he loved the idealism of, of Wilson. He thought he had the Wilson death in the Oval Office, he, it, but it, I think it ended up, Alan, you may know that story better than I do. I think it ended up, the archives gave him the wrong desk or something. Oh, oh no. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. I'm not sure. I'll okay. have to look okay. into that. <laughs> um, but no, he, 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 loved, he loved Woodrow Wilson. Uh, he loved Lincoln, obviously. So I, the, the, I would say one of those two. I think a lot of parallels between Nixon and Wilson, as you say that, certainly both intellectuals. Very much so. And, and you know, it's interesting because Nixon, we think of Nixon as in, in realism in terms of foreign policy, which is very true. But, you know, he, he in some ways, there was a little bit of idealism as well, you know, ending the Cold War, you know, winning the Cold War, fighting for freedom. I mean, there, there was there was a touch of idealism as well, not as much as Wilson had, but, but there was some of it. If Nixon were around today, would he be a personal user of Twitter or Facebook? If he, if he would, it would be, it would be a, a very Nixonian approach to it. It would not be, you know, the Trump, you know, tweets in the middle of the night, right? They would be much more strategic and, and, uh, you know, less frequent would be my guess. Now his secret service code name was searchlight during his presidency. If they changed it in his post-presidency, what's the word that best describes him? Boy, there's several I could pick. The one I would probably choose is relentless. Um, I mean, he he is relentless during this time period, faces enormous obstacles, and and just never stops. I mean, even all the way up to the very end, he's he's writing. You know, he's on the phone with people in Washington. He's on the phone with President Clinton. I mean, he he was working all the way to the end. So I would say relentless. What were some of his favorite post-presidential hobbies? How did he stay active? So he does play golf some. He's a huge baseball fan. I, I talk in the book about when they're when they're in Southern California living uh, from 74 to 79, the Angels are, are, of course, Orange County. So they're a little closer. So he, he goes to quite a few Angels games. Uh, and then when they move to New York, uh, he's a Mets fan and goes to, to Mets games. So sports sports was was always important to him his whole life. And then I think just honestly, his, his work was his hobby. I mean, writing and reading, he never stopped reading. He never stopped doodling on his, his legal pads every day and, and ideas and thoughts and pros and cons of things. And so I think that really was a hobby in a sense that he enjoyed working and, and found a lot of pleasure in, in keeping his mind active. 
Now, he was so busy in his post-presidential life. This may be tough for you, but what's your favorite moment? You know, one that was surprising to me, and I, I didn't know the story uh, until I, I began researching it. And then, it, you know, it, I, I learned about it, and, I, and it, it was just sort of shocking to me that kind of all of the parallels that were going on in his remarks. But it's, it's when he went and uh, delivered the eulogy at Woody Hayes' funeral. Woody Hayes, of course, was a you know, famous Ohio State football coach. And Nixon was was very friendly with him. They've been friends for many years. And and Woody Hayes, in some ways, is is kind of a parallel existence to Nixon. I mean, he he is a revolutionary coach, wins multiple national championships, is considered one of the great minds in the game, and yet he's brought down by scandal. Um, he is forced out uh, in the late seventies during the Peach Bowl when a, a Clemson player. Uh, intercepts an Ohio State pass to seal the game, and he he lands on the Ohio State sideline, and Woody Hayes picks him up and punches him, and he's fired the next day. And uh, Nixon delivers the eulogy, and it's it's fascinating to go back and you know kind of read those remarks, and you know he he talked in the remarks about how uh, Hayes won his third national title in 1969. And Nixon said he could have retired then, he could have retired at the top, but he didn't. And if you think of why he didn't retire, you have to remember that he knew there were risks. And there's a rule in life, if you take no risk, you suffer no defeats. But if you take no risk, you win no victories. And it's really hard to know, in, in going back and watching that eulogy, was he really talking about Woody Hayes or was he talking about Richard Nixon? It's a perfect description of his comeback, that he you know, was unapologetic, that he was proud of his accomplishments in office. He often said, you know, eventually people are going to have to look at all of my accomplishments, not just Watergate. And uh, and he wanted to still be going strong to the very end, just like uh, like his friend Woody Hayes. So that was a that was kind of a fascinating thing to, to look at and kind of look for some deeper hidden meaning there in that eulogy. And finally, Casey, I have a challenge for you in just sure. one sentence or so. Can you summarize his post-presidency? I think it would have to be he believed he had something important to say, and he said it. He believed he still had important things to offer uh, on foreign policy uh, to the American public at large, to policymakers in Washington, and more specifically, uh, to to three presidents, three of his successors. And it's a measure of how successful his post-presidency was that he was able to say those things. And he was able to influence uh, some of the culminating events in the Cold War and, uh, you know, some of the, the decisions that were made uh, in the dismantling of, of the Soviet Union and the, and the breakaway republics from Russia. So uh, I, that would be the sentence. He, he believed he had something to say and he was able to say it. And I, I think that's probably true for all of us. You know, if you can accomplish that in life, you, you've done pretty well for yourself. And Casey, what's next for you? Do you have a topic you're writing about now? You know, I've got a couple of ideas that I'm bouncing around. Nothing, uh, nothing that I've, that I've committed to yet. Um, I'm a, kind of a part-time historian. I have to make money, um, you know, doing <laughs> insulting and other things. I have a wife and three kids. And so, uh, um, uh, you know, we're paying the bills right now, but uh, there's there's a couple of ideas brewing, and I, I hope to to be able to spend time with them soon. 
Yeah. Well, when you do, let us know. We'll love to have you back on. Absolutely. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. I enjoyed talking to you again. Thank you so much for joining us on American POTUS. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens and participates in the podcast. More information on all of our terrific guests and their published works can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. And while you're there, we'd love to see your questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics. And remember to like or follow us on Facebook or Twitter so you'll be up to date on future episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Richard Nixon, quote, Always remember, others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them, and then you destroy yourself. <laughs>